Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People gift card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem at any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Pauline Jarico's instinct was always to help the church establish itself in the new world, since this old one seemed at times beyond help. But this bishop, just tell me your view, Claude, please and smartly, should I trust Bishop Brady with the society's money? Money, that lovely word fully restored Claude's attention. This was the moment in any business transaction that he would present the client with his solution to her problem. But tonight, where was the solution? A great opportunity seemed to glow in the cupped hands of the silk merchant, a firefly slowly dying. Then the garden gate opened and Fabrice Clerico appeared. He was not in a hurry. He saw them, began to stroll up the path, but stopped to talk with the Senegalese gardener. Excuse me, Pauline, said Claude, feigning as much good humour as he could manage. I will fetch him. Claude met his beloved son halfway down the garden path. As viewed from behind, a loving father warmly embraced his somewhat tardy son. Fabrice, however, received a different view of the encounter. His father's face declared that he would rather have smacked the son's cheek than hug him. Strong, bony thumbs pressed hard into the flesh at the front of his shoulders. Ouch, yelped Fabrice Clerico. You are late, boy, Claude snarled while gently turning his dear son around to face the hostess and stroking his back with great affection. Kiss her hand, say nothing stupid, agree to every proposition, and do not ask questions. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Peter Burke is a doctor and writer of Western Australian historical fiction. Peter is the author of two previous novels, The Drowning Dream and Wetning Aurelia. Today I'm joined by Peter Burke to talk about his latest book, The Silk Merchant's Son. Peter, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Greg, thank you so much, and thank you to all the readers of Good Reading. The Silk Merchant Sun is a journey along a line connecting dots on an early 19th century map from Europe to Perth. But before we talk about the point of departure, let's get into the destination, the Swan River Colony of 1845. As a writer of historical fiction, how do the facts inform what you imagine life to be in that fledgling colony? Well... It was different to the rest of Australia. Our myth, that's slightly true, is that the Swan River Colony was formed by nice, free, middle-class people with very enlightened sensibilities. That's what we like to think over here. And so that's sort of the starting point. Obviously, um, as we get closer and drill down on these things, we often see the truth is a little less clear than that. But, you know, we were not a penal colony, not at first, until we went broke and then we asked to be. But that, that made quite a big difference. So it was populated by second sons of second sons, and it was incredibly remote, and it almost disappeared and went broke. So 1845, 16 years after colonisation, a struggling Anglican outpost, which was just barely hanging on with a few sheep and a bit of sandalwood, and a lot of people thinking, gee, if I hadn't spent all my money on land, I might go home. They really had to struggle, and the only people that made money in those early days were the very few labourers. And so you saw situations where shepherds 
started to own more sheep than the uh, than the actual owners because they were being paid in sheep. It was an unusual start, and that was the that was the element that these Catholic missionaries came out to. You've gathered a cast of very intriguing characters, both real and imagined, each motivated by a different cause, and some with no desire to be there at all. But let's start with the real people, not an homogenous group at all. What's their purpose? Uh, dare I say, what was their dream for the Swan River Colony? Well, you always wonder with missionaries whether there's sort of two layers of that on balance. They probably sort of thought of themselves as the lefties of their time, not part of the colonial experiment at all. And so I think the missionaries coming out had a genuine belief. They'd been told by Bishop Brady that there were two million Aboriginal souls to save and, and thousands of Catholics in the colony. They were sold a lie, particularly with respect to the numbers of, of colonists that were here. On one level, those coming out probably thought that they were going to do good work in their own mind with respect to uh, pastoral work protecting perhaps to some degree the Aboriginal people from the excesses of colonialism. Quite a few amongst them were Irish and they were suffering terrible circumstances at the hands of, of English colonists, so they didn't need any educating about the harms of colonialism. That's not how we view it now, but I, I think to a degree, reading the contemporaneous words of those folk, they really did believe that that's what they were going to do obviously a difference between motivation and outcomes. But then, you know, you wonder behind that, was there a parallel project at a different level coming from Rome, which was almost in parallel to the British colonial mission, which was on a much more right-wing level, if you like, which is to, uh, to expand territory and power into an area currently not controlled by the Catholic Church. The world's full of these amb ambiguities, but I think missionary work is definitely one of those ambiguous areas. So you mentioned Bishop John Brady, but on that same ship was one Dom Salvado and also the Sisters of Mercy and in particular Ursula Frayne, all very interesting real people. I'm glad you mentioned Ursula. I'm, I'm very attached to Ursula and the Sisters of Mercy because um, she'd been burned. She'd had her fingers burned in Newfoundland. These girls were only in their early 20s, by the way. Ursula Frayne was determined that that would not happen again. So she agreed to come out as Mother Superior, but she got Bishop Brady to sign a very precise agreement, legal agreement, saying that, that he understood that the Sisters of Mercy would have a high degree of autonomy and that they would stay answerable to the um, home convent in Dublin. That was the start of a conflict of which this project has, has many, where they're not all on the same page. The Benedictines had their own project, Benedictines also famously independent, Sisters of Mercy famously independent from the time they were founded, and you've got Bishop Brady, who was a hopeless administrator, hopeless with money, and arrived here having already spent all the money. Another character there, Dom Salvado, and establishing New Norcia. Dom is a missionary. His ideal is to establish this monastic village, but not everything goes to plan. Now, he changed his mind a few times about what he wants. Salvado initially thought that they would live like nomads and actually live in huts, follow the uh, Nunga Yuen people around and gradually teach them about the love of Jesus and uh, learn their language. So at this stage, it's very different to a monastic village. There was none of that. 
they were camping near billabongs and uh, living in a hut. But he developed a new idea, which was essentially to recreate Santiago de Compostela in what became the Northern Wheat Belt, which to this day, you drive past and you look at New Norcia and you go, how the hell did this appear? You know, it has the look of a folly, in fact, but an amazing folly, a Spanish monastic town in the middle of nowhere. So we follow that journey. And in doing that, he parts company with his superior. He was not the boss of that part of the mission. His superior was Dom Serra, and he lost faith altogether. And he set up a different project, which was establishing Subiaco, uh, because he wanted to stay metropolitan and probably became a little less interested in providing pastoral care to the Aboriginal people and thought, I might just stay in the suburbs. Fabrice Clerico, he's the cat among the pigeons, a reluctant traveller and an atheist in a devout world, a linguistics professor, an enlightened man, some might say, but a fictional character among the real. He's a wonderful character. I love the phrase you used to describe him. As a purveyor of fine silk, it was his job to be charming. Why introduce a fictional character and will his charm hold him in good stead in the wilds of Western Australia? Most of us in the year 2023 probably have made our minds up about how brilliant the whole idea of colonialism was. We probably have pretty good ideas about how brilliant we think the whole idea of Catholic proselytising was, and that we're aware that ultimately how this ends with permanent damage to culture and language of Aboriginal people. So we can't unknow that. And yet, I think there's lots of interesting stories in there. So he represents us a little bit. I wanted, a, I like your expression, the cat amongst the pigeons. And I think um, he's not the only one. And I put, I wanted some skeptics amongst. Who wants to read a book that just has 28 missionaries all full of missionary zeal? And he's your main one, but he's not the only one. There's a fellow called Roger Smith, who was an aristocratic humanist who just thinks he'll have a little bit of a hippie commune. And there are others. And it gives me an opportunity for him to have conversations which are humorous and challenging to both the colonists and to the missionaries. So that's that's his role. He doesn't want to come out to Australia. He has no interest at all. He's a, he's a Rousseauian. I think Fabrice might subscribe to the idea of the noble savage. Yeah, that's a, that's a Rousseauian sort of a... You know, we forget, those of us from the 60s think that every enlightened idea came from somewhere around the mid-1960s. But it turns out most of these, most of these ideas, the mid-19th century was an amazingly vibrant time for discussion, particularly discussion about the value of religion, the harms of religion. Europe was ablaze with such talk at that time. So he, he's, not a, uh, he's not an unlikely character, actually. And continuing on with that sense of idealism, you introduce another character, another foil perhaps to the others, Roger Smith. Let's call him a semi-fictional character because he's based on a real person, Robert Owen, but transformed, shall we say. What is Roger Smith's role in the story? So Robert Owen was, was uh, one of many mid-19th century. There were these wealthy industrialists who could see the harm that society was doing and, uh, and wanted to start perfect societies. Robert Owen established one new harmony in the States, a Welsh industrialist. And I've got a, a mini Robert Owen in my book, Roger Smith, who is a fictional character. He's a humanist. He's actually an aristocratic fellow who just, I might just pop down to the colonies and start a hippie commune in 2J. Now, why? I was sort of interested in how much difference there really was between humanism and these Catholic missionaries who really did want to do some good work. And I've got this fellow, Roger Smith, starting 
an ultimately very unsuccessful hippie commune in 2J. And I've got, I've got him actually philosophically finding himself very similar to this fellow Salvado. They're both bearded fellows, very good with their hands and all the moving parts. And uh, they find themselves in furious agreement on almost everything, even though one is doing all his work for God and the other is doing it for humanity. And I found that an interesting concept. And I, I, I play with it a little bit there because old Salvado gets messed around by Rome and he gets made bishop ultimately of the wrong place. He gets made Bishop of Port Victoria, which happens to be at the tip of the Coburg Peninsula, north of where Darwin is now. And he wants to be in New Norcia, a long, long way away. And I've got him at one point stripping his, his coke off in the Bay of Naples on a boat, thinking, you know what? I can do this like Roger Smith as a humanist. And then all these volunteers start to appear and he realises, well, they're not going to come if I'm a humanist. And the problem with humanist um, projects is they always run out of rocket fuel. Whereas the church, for all its foibles, for a couple of thousand years, somehow manages to keep hospitals and schools, churches and community projects going. You can say part of it's based on things that are hard to define, but nonetheless, there's some, there's some abstract thing that keeps it going. So I thought, I thought I wanted to talk about that. Could we have done this work better with a humanist project? And that's the purpose of, uh, of, of old Roger Smith. At the centre of this story and of the expedition, of course, are the Noongar people. What did all this, whether it's proselytising, conversion, exploitation, what did this mean for the Noongar people and how do you represent their experience in the narrative of the Silk Merchant's Son? Um, bewilderment, I suppose, if you're going to reduce it to a word. So this is only 16 years after white man appeared in the Swan River colony. I, of course, don't pretend to take the Noongar viewpoint, but I would hope that uh, a reader can sense on every page what we know history produced out of, out of colonialism and also out of uh, missionary work. So um, important things in this are, are language. There's a reason that Fabrice Clerico is a linguist. And uh, several characters talk about the personal harm that they feel from losing their language, and we know that it's going to happen to the Noongar people. This is before all that happens, of course, but we know part of colonial experience and we know part of schools, church, all that. Part of the deal was you give up language and culture. You might be given the blessing and in inverted commas of a new language and culture, Latin and church and that, but you've got to give something up. We know that's there. So I hope it's there on every page. I'm not one personally that responds well to a lecturely tone. I like the use of humour and humans. I hope there's lots of chuckles in there. I hope people engage with the characters. And I guess on the Aboriginal character viewpoint, I think a particularly poignant uh, part of it is when the um, Benedictines decide they'll start to take young Aboriginal kids who are uh, Noongar Ue kids from the New Nortia region across to Rome to become monks, ending, of course, in tragedy. And you could portray that as either a, a wonderfully enlightened uh, uh, project or tragedy or both. One of the really interesting things about this book is all these points of view, and we've talked about the characters, and they all have their own motivations for being there. Uh, from our point of view, some 200 years later, readers themselves might also have competing views, competing opinions about this history. But how do you, as an author, 
balance all those points of view. And, and what do you want readers to conclude upon reading this story, if indeed it is possible to reach a definitive conclusion? The definitive conclusion is that the answer is gardening. The astute reader may notice that I've stolen my first and last lines from Voltaire's Candide. Pangloss um, says to Candide, all very well, Candide, but there's gardening to be done. The uh, journey circles back to the um, post-revolutionary, um, you know, the 1848 uh, was a very tough year to be in Lyon. The journey circles back to the garden of Pauline Jaricot, who funded the missionary project, and uh, it finishes in the garden. Those of us that enjoy gardening and feel that that's the most existential thing, the book agrees. My job is to uh, put all those conflicts and inconsistencies and ambiguities out there with some humour and hopefully interesting characters to see them through. And uh, if it's confusing, good, because I think most of these concepts are very simple in the abstract. So we can stand back in the abstract without humans, colonialism, good or bad, yep, easy. But when you zoom in and look at the characters, that's where it's good for us because it gets a lot more confusing, no easy answers. Uh, but also that's where the stories begin. And uh, that's what I enjoy. I feel like you might have evaded that question somehow. <laughs> but The Silk Merchant's Son is both a fascinating story and a wonderful insight into that period of West Australian history. And Peter, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. I really appreciate it, Greg. Thank you so much. I've been talking to Peter Burke about his new book, The Silk Merchant's Son. It's published by Fremantle, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People gift card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.